Hello, everyone, and welcome to worship. Uh, give a shout out to Saratoga, to Half Moon, and to Latham. It's great to be together studying God's Word, learning together, and growing as disciples of Jesus. If you're new to Grace, we are uh, one church just meeting at multiple locations, and uh, we are excited about uh, the fact that although we are far from perfect, we serve a Savior and a Lord who is, and he is changing us uh, from the inside out, and that's really, really exciting stuff. So welcome today. We're so glad that you're with us, whatever location you may be worshiping at. Again, for those who are online, we are so glad you are worshiping with us as well. Well, last week, we kicked off this question, is there a God? And I said that many people have asked me through the years, prove God to me. Can you prove it? And I shared last week that I believe that is actually a misguided question. I think what people really want is scientific proof, like scientific methodology. But the fact is, the most important things in our lives we can't prove with scientific methodology. They're not observable directly, they are non-repeatable, and they're non-measurable. And I used a number of examples for that as we kind of laid a foundation last week. But what that means is that we can't prove by scientific method things that are in history, philosophical things, religious knowledge, we can't prove all the non-material things. What we can do is stack up the evidence. And so today, I wanna to pick up right there where we left off and talk about the evidence for God. What evidence do we have that God exists? There's a phrase I would love for you to be familiar with. We call it natural revelation. Natural revelation. And that's mostly what we're talking about today. In other words, if we were to close our Bibles, now as Christians, we don't want to do that, of course, because we learn so much from our Bible. It's God's gift to us. But let's say we had to close our Bible. Somebody doesn't believe it. What evidence do we have from natural revelation? Well, I want to use an analogy. Let's imagine that you have a neighbor next door at least you think you have a neighbor, but you've never met your neighbor. In fact, between your house and the neighbor's house is some high arbor vitae that is really thick and you can't really see through it. But you believe you have a neighbor because you've seen smoke coming out of the chimney in cold weather. You've sometimes heard sounds, maybe music or voices, but man, they were muffled and they weren't really that clear, so you're not really sure what it was, but you've also seen movement. You've seen cars coming and going and so on. So you think you have a neighbor, but it's kind of clouded in mystery. You've never met your neighbor. In other words, you know nothing about your neighbor's personality, if indeed you have one, whether he or she is good or bad, young or old, kind or unkind, even male or female, you just don't know. And so it is with natural revelation. Natural revelation may give us evidence that there is a God, but it doesn't tell us anything about what that God is like. 
I mean, is it the Christian God that Christians talk about? Or is it the God that some other religious system tells us about? How do we know? How do we know what kind of personality this God has or what kind of emotions this God may have toward us? These are questions we can't answer by natural revelation. We can only answer them if, if God tells us something about himself. If there's some sort of intentional self-disclosure, then we can know more. And theologians call that special revelation. So we need to know the difference. Natural revelation is like the smoke coming out of the chimney, the sounds we may hear, the movement we see. We think there's someone there, but until the person reaches out, until there's some self-disclosure, we know very little about the person. So let's suppose that for several months of thinking you have a neighbor, but not really knowing, one day you get a note in your mailbox, and your neighbor has reached out and invited you over for coffee, so you go. For the first time, you meet the neighbor, you have a wonderful conversation, and your neighbor hands you a book that he's written. It's an autobiography. It tells you all about him. Well, that's the equivalent of what God has done in the Bible. Now we have more than just natural revelation. Now we have more than smoke out of the chimney, a few sounds, some movement, stuff like that. Now we know special revelation. We know what God is like. And God has communicated with us that way by giving us the Bible, but he's also communicated supremely by giving us his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Jesus made it clear that when we knew him, we knew God. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter one, God, after he spoke long ago, through the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways. In other words, God had given us natural revelation. We knew something about God through that. He'd given us various prophets, various revelations of himself through his mighty acts and miracles with the people of Israel. But notice, he's done more now. He communicated in many portions and in many ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. God's come over through the son, and now we actually get to know him and experience God personally in a relationship that is alive and growing. And that, of course, is what the Christian life is all about. We started with natural revelation, smoking chimneys, sounds, movement. Then the neighbor revealed himself by reaching out through conversations, and handing us an autobiography. Well, let's go a step further. Let's say that you're single. Let's say that you have no mom or dad, no family whatsoever. You're all alone, and this neighbor eventually adopts you into the family. Wow. Now you're on a much more intimate, relational basis with the neighbor because of this genuine relationship. That's a picture of what God has invited us into. 
So today, I want to go on this little journey with you and talk about that first part, natural revelation. If God had not reached out, if he had not come over and invited us into conversation and a relationship, what would we know about the neighbor next door, as it were? What would we know about God just by looking at natural revelation? How would we know God exists? Through the centuries, great theologians, philosophers, thinkers have come up with what are called arguments for God's existence. And I would want you to know these. I'm going to present only three of them to you today. There are more, but these are the ones that I believe are most compelling and in some ways the most memorable. They're called classical arguments for God's existence. So let's Look at three of them together today. First of all, there's what's known as the cosmological argument. The cosmological argument argues from cause to effect, from movement to a prime mover. It begins with the understanding that rest is a natural state. Movement is unnatural. Motion always has a cause. For instance, this podium, this lectern that I'm standing beside today, it is resting, it is still, that's its natural state. But suppose that suddenly this podium, this lectern began to move across the platform. You'd all be amazed. You'd go, is this some silly illustration Pastor Rex is trying to pull off? Is there an almost invisible string attached to that? Is it magnetized and some powerful magnet is pulling it? You'd want to know why. What's causing that? Because you know that effects have causes. Now, Thomas Aquinas was a great Christian thinker. He lived from 1224 to 1274, only 50 years, but wow, what he accomplished. His great work called Summa Theologica has been one of the most informative, one of the most shaping theological works ever done. He was sort of like the Ravi Zacharias of his day. He was sort of like the J.P. Moreland or the William Lane Craig of his day, a great apologist for the faith. And he said that everything moves has to be moved by another thing. Every effect has a cause. But this chain of movers cannot go on into infinity because there has to be a prime mover, someone who got it all started. Probably you have set up dominoes at one time in your life, right? Side by side. And you get them all set up and hope you don't knock them down before you're ready. And you set up a long chain of dominoes but you then have to go, and you're the prime mover, you touch that first domino and they all fall. It knocks the rest of them down. There has to be a prime mover. And Aquinas said that prime mover, that first cause is God. Now, someone might immediately object and say, whoa, whoa, time out, wait a minute, there's a flaw in that logic. If everything needs a cause, then who caused God? Please listen closely. The cosmological argument does not say that everything has a cause. It says that everything that has a beginning has a cause. 
That is a crucial distinction. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. And science is almost universal in its agreement that the universe had a beginning. Oh, they argue about how long ago it was. They look at evidence from from Hubble's telescope and Einstein's calculations and other sources, but they virtually unanimously agree the universe had a beginning, and that cause is God. One of the many books that we recommend in the bibliography that you can check out online, and I hope you'll do that, is one by Mark Middleberg called The Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask. Isn't that a great title? The Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask. I highly recommend it. He tells in that the true story about a friend of his, Dr. Chad Meister. Dr. Meister's wife, her accounting firm that she worked for, was throwing a big party to celebrate the end of tax season. And so all the spouses were invited, so Dr. Chad Meister was there, and he happened to be seated beside a pilot of one of the major airlines, and eventually the conversation got around to spiritual matters, and the pilot said he did not believe in God. I'm going to read now from Middleburg's book, this paragraph. Chad brought up his cosmological evidence from the Hubble telescope, and the pilot responded, Yes, but how do you know it's God who created the universe? Maybe an alien did the creating. Chad replied, maybe so. But let's keep in mind that our alien, whom we can call Bob, is timeless, that is, outside of time, non-spatial, outside of the spatial dimension, immaterial, not made up of any matter, and does not consist of physical energy, yet, yet, was powerful enough to create the entire universe, all the billions and billions of galaxies, each of which has billions and billions of stars. In light of that information, you can call him Bob, but I call him Yahweh. This is the transcendent God beyond space and time in whom Christians have believed for 2,000 years. So that's the cosmological argument. You look out there and you go, who's the prime mover? Who got it all started? What is the cause behind all these effects? That's the cosmological argument for God's existence. I think a very good one. But I like the second argument even better. It's called the teleological argument, sometimes called the argument from design. Here's why it's called the argument from design, because it says the universe has evident design in it, therefore it is not a coincidence or a cosmic accident. There are scientific laws that are universal and constant that allow life on earth to exist. One writer compared it to the porridge in Goldilocks and the Three Bears. You remember that little kid's story? Kind of intriguing. Goldilocks comes along and tries the first bear's porridge, and you remember it was too hot, right? Then she goes to the second bear's porridge, and it is too cold. Ah, but then she goes to the third, and that third bowl of porridge is, here's the words, just right. And so that's been called the Goldilocks effect. Now, it means that there are 
dozens of factors on earth that allow life to exist that must must be precisely as they are if it's all going to work. It makes it just right. Preachers and others use common analogies to try to explain this. I've used these analogies before. Perhaps you've heard them or used them. We say the chances of the world with all of its intricate design coming about merely by chance are about as great as a tornado ripping through a lumber yard and poof, two minutes later, there is a seven-bedroom state-of-the-art mansion. There it is, perfectly designed. Or it's like the chances of an explosion in a garbage can and bang, immediately you have a Mac computer. We go, that's ridiculous. Of course it is. Because any thinking person knows if you have something with intricate design and purposefulness, you've got to have a designer. There's got to be intelligence behind this. It takes too much faith to believe it just happened by accident. And our world is just that way. Have you ever thought about it? It's got to have just the right size and gravitational pull. It's got to have just the right tilt, just the right distance from the sun. If it's too hot, we burn up. If it's too cold, we freeze. We need light, but not too much ultraviolet light. We need heat, but not too much ultra-red. These ratios are amazingly precise and balanced that allow life to exist. Have you ever thought that we have an atmospheric shield above us that protects us from being constantly bombarded by meteorites? Much more than happens. And do you realize that we have a rock shield just 10 miles below us? That's less than the distance between our Latham and Half Moon campuses. And were it not there, we would burn up because it is terrific heat there. The Goldilocks effect says the possibility of all these factors falling into place by pure chance is infinitesimally small. Now, let's say that you're playing poker with a friend. I just want to illustrate it in another way. And let's say that your friend gets 15, and the first 15 hands you play, the first 15 rounds gets 15 royal flushes in a row. Now, for you non-poker players, that means you get ace, king, queen, jack, 10, all of the same suit. Years ago, I played a good deal of poker, and I never, ever have gotten a royal flush. I mean, they are incredibly rare. That is about the equivalent of winning the lottery 15 times in a row. Now, if this happened to you, you're playing poker with your friend, even though your friend may be incredibly honest, what would you conclude? (laughs) You'd conclude you're cheating. Somebody, I don't know what's going on, but I know one thing, somebody's messing with these cards. I don't have enough faith to believe that you got 15 royal flushes in a row by chance. It's just not going to happen. I'm not that gullible. I don't have that much faith. I'd have to check my brain at the door to believe that. 
That's what scientists, and not just Christian scientists, have concluded about the earth. You can read about this prolifically. Put a number of books in the bibliography about this that deal with this. Scientists who are not Christians at all have concluded there has to be some sort of intelligent designer because the conditions needed are so precise, it could not have just fallen into place by chance. So friend, I say to you, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, your journey of belief or non-belief, I wanna tell you something, you got a choice to make. Either this universe is a cosmic accident or it was intentionally designed, it cannot be both. It cannot be both. And if we cavalierly say, oh, it just all happened by chance, whatever, That's not an answer. That's a cop-out on an answer. You're actually abandoning an explanation when you say that. Paul Davies is one of the authors. I included two of his books in your bibliography. One is called The Mind of God. The other is called The Goldilocks Enigma. Why is the universe just right for life? He says, and I'm gonna quote him now, I cannot believe that our existence in this universe is a mere quirk of fate. We are truly meant to be here. Now, folks, that's a profound statement. Paul Davies is not a Christian. In fact, can I tell you something? That statement I just read comes from a cosmologist who does not even believe in a personal God. And yet he looks at this universe and goes, there's no way, I do not have enough faith to believe this just happened by some cosmic accident without some sort of intelligent designer involved. That's the teleological argument for God's existence. But there's one more that I want to mention today in our study together, and again, Uh, When you have conversations with your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, your family, persons who are struggling with faith and wondering, is there any evidence outside the Bible? These are things I would hope you could dialogue about. The third is the moral argument. The moral argument basically says this. Look, in every culture, in every place on earth, no matter what the situation people are in, there seems to be a moral code that has been hardwired into their conscience. Now, a sociologist or some psychologist might come and go along and go, oh, no, that's just all nurture. That's just all social conditioning. That's just all the training that people have received. Uh-uh. It goes beyond that. It transcends cultural and social training. Children, for instance, have this innately in them. You don't have to teach it. If five children are playing together and they get a piece of cake and four of them get exactly the same size piece of cake and the fifth child gets a piece that is obviously smaller, they all know that's not fair. Where did that come from? Their parents didn't have to teach them that. That is a universal moral consciousness. By the way, just in case you're wondering, for those of you who are Bible people like I am, people of faith, this is precisely what the Bible teaches, by the way. 
Paul, in Romans 1, gives the cosmological argument, and he talks about God's evidence in creation, and he also would include the teleological argument in that. But then in chapter 2 of Romans, verses 14 and 15, listen to what he says. He really uses the moral argument. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, in other words, they don't have a Bible, they don't have the first five books of the Bible from Moses, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They don't have a Bible. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience is also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. Do you understand what he's saying there? People who've never picked up a Bible, they've never heard a Christian sermon in their life, they don't know the Ten Commandments, they still have an inherent sense of right and wrong. Now, they may violate that, just as people who've read the Bible can do, and they can sear their conscience through continued disobedience, but nevertheless, that moral consciousness is definitely there. By the way, that's why I think we get bent out of shape when our novels that we're reading or our movies that we're watching or our real-life stories don't end with good winning or with justice being brought to bear. You, watch, you ever watched a movie maybe with your spouse, with some friends, and it's going along, and you're like, oh, oh surely they're going to resolve this, right? Surely this is going to get made right. And it doesn't. What do you feel like? You're like, ugh, I hate that ending. And even though you realize life doesn't always turn out nice and pretty with a bow on top, you still, I hate the ending of that movie. Why? Because it violates that innate sense that God put in our hearts for justice and for what is right. By the way, the greatest of the modern philosophers, anybody who takes philosophy as a major in college will read Immanuel Kant. You can't go through philosophy course without being introduced to Immanuel Kant. Kant taught this. He called it categorical imperatives. And again, same thing the Bible teaches, that there is some kind of moral code hardwired, not his words, mine, he called them categorical imperatives in every person, and it transcends every culture, Immanuel Kant said, considered one of the most brilliant thinkers of all time. By the way, just for, just for fun, C.S. Lewis, one of the most popular Christian writers, his book, Mere Christianity, voted the number one book of the 20th century, by the way. It is all based on the moral argument. He does a wonderful job parsing out the moral argument. He never says that outright. Hey, I'm parsing out the moral. But that's what his whole book is based on. He looks not out there, but inside humanity, and he makes a brilliant argument for God's existence based on what you see inside. So there you have it. The cosmological, the teleological, the moral argument for God's existence. And by the way, again, all these things are actually taught in the Bible. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. 
Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. God has expressed something of himself in creation through both humanity as well as the cosmos. It's not everything we wanna know about God. It's kind of like the neighbor next door, the chimney is smoking, there's movement, there's some sounds. We know somebody's there, but we want to know more about our neighbor's personality. That only comes through special revelation. Now, last weekend, I ended by sharing with you candidly just some feelings I have, and I just want to return to that for a moment. I really really respect honest doubters. I just want you to know, if that's you today, well, you've got my respect. In fact, I, I've actually given lots of book recommendations and article recommendations to people that I perceive are on a genuine, honest journey trying to find God. I really respect that. But I also shared with you that I have trouble respecting people who don't seem to really want to find answers or God. Their attitude seems to be, nah, there is no God, that's silly. My mind is made up, don't confuse me with the evidence. So I wanna say to you, I don't know again where you are on the journey, but I wanna say to you with all sincerity, this is not just a mental activity. I hope you understand that. There is a willfulness involved in the search for God. In other words, let me put it to you like this. If you don't want to find God, you're probably never gonna find him. God has said to us, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You really want to meet me, in other words. I may be like the neighbor next door to you right now. There's a whole lot you don't know, but if you don't wanna get to know me better, deeper, more about me, it's not gonna happen. If you refuse my invitations to get together for dialogue, to look at the evidence, to read my autobiography, if you don't wanna meet God, You'll never meet him. But here's the good news, and I'll close with this. If you are truly seeking God, I am so excited because I believe you're gonna find him. In fact, I think he's made that promise. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And here's the good news. God is seeking you too. It's not like he's trying to remain hidden or a mystery. Jesus actually gave as his mission statement in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man himself, he said, I've come to seek and to save what is lost. And folks, I wanna tell you, it doesn't take a seeking Savior and a seeking sinner very long to find each other if they really, really, really wanna meet. God has given us so much evidence that he's there. Natural revelation, but he's also given a special revelation 
through Jesus' son and through his word, the Bible, it is so exciting to get to know the neighbor next door. Father, thank you so much that you've not left us mystified or in the dark. You've not veiled yourself in fog and mystery, although there's so much we don't understand, but you've moved into the neighborhood, as it were. You've reached out. You've given us your autobiography, the Bible. You've told us so much about what you're like. Thank you that we can actually know you personally and get adopted into your family. And Father, I pray for those who are on a genuine journey of exploration, that these talks we're having here would just stoke their desire to want to go deeper and deeper into you. And may they seek you and find you as they seek you with all their heart. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.